Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Outside the Box Conversations. And of course, this time I'm with Dr. Paul Gorman, who's a good friend of mine, and I'm so thankful that he's on the show with us today. Dr. Gorman, how you doing? Just very well. Glad to be here. We've, um, you know, I, I've gotten to know you over the last couple of years, and and we've had these amazing conversations about healthcare and just where where things are at. And I've always thought, man, if I could have just had a camera on us, or could we just had the podcaster turned on, it would help so many people. And and that's kind of what I want to go where I want to go with this conversation. But let's start with tell everybody kind of who you are and the experience that you've, you came to Performance Medicine with. Well, sure. Um, I've been in Johnson City for 30 years. My wife and I moved here with three small children after completing an orthopedic surgery residency and an additional year of hand surgery uh, fellowship, upper extremity uh, focused surgical training, and spent 15 years in a large orthopedic group here in Johnson City, and then mid-career had this epiphany that I really wasn't going to be able to consummate what my dream was and I think what I was gifted for if I stayed in a larger practice setting taking my pro rata share of general orthopedic trauma call when my focus really was primarily on hand and wrist surgery uh, treating maladies of the hand and wrist and upper extremity so in 19... Um, I guess it was really about 2004, I really began to strategically plan leaving that group and going solo and having my wife involved with the practice a good bit and opening up a, and in fact it turned out to be the region's only um, orthopedic hand clinic focused solely on the diagnosis and treatment of hand and Mm -hmm. mostly elbow to fingertip problems inclusive of hand therapy in the office and being able to do in-office surgery under local anesthesia. And one of the principal things that I was bound by conscience to do was to try to work away from so much of the third-party payment, which is driving um, the way visits are structured and the limits to which physicians can actually treat patients with the problems they come in with instead of just treating problems. Uh, that patients tend to have. So I made a concerted effort and volitionally withdrew from all of the government third-party payers to make medical visits more streamlined and um, offer up services for those who did want to um, pay on a fee-for-service basis. Let's say they did not have insurance or what we call medical third-party payers. And so that flourished for 14 years, and then with each year, uh, it kind of worked out to where my wife was working more than me as she (laughs) did all the billing and patient accounts, taxes, payroll, a plethora of other administrative things. And the working of the claims, the filing of the claims, the dealing with denials, and this, as we talked about last night, this business plan of many of these third-party payers to delay, deny, and don't pay. Um, If we wanted to be really honest, we'd call it theft. Um, And so the rigor with which she had to work these claims was becoming exhaustive. Uh, 
and frustrating to say the least. And so I was blessed at a point last year, uh, actually it's been almost two years now, to unwind the solo hand surgery practice, um, sell the office and officially retire from surgery. More to let my wife, or in concert with letting my wife retire from all those business management tasks, mm-hmm. which you're very familiar with doing much of that yourself uh, at, at, at Performance Medicine. So um, that's been about two years, took six months completely off. I'd never taken more than a week or two off at a time. And um, it providentially uh, worked out well to be able to help my wife with some medical problems that came up. And we were able to downsize um, and move back into Johnson City after living in Washington County on a farm for 25 years. So um, your dad and I had been very equally yoked over the years as he referred patients to me and um, stated degrees of health that were far uh, beyond what a lot of my patients were of of similar age. In other words, um, many of his patients looked younger than their stated age and were really ready for surgery. There Mm -hmm. there weren't some of the vitamin deficiencies and other um, chronic problems which can retard surgical healing. So... After six months of listening to him encourage me to come see part-time orthopedic consults here at Performance Medicine a half a day a week, I I acquiesced and out of desire more than need have have been here a little over a year and um, working as an independent contractor. I've uh, coveted y'all's friendship and the camaraderie and the conversations that that we've had sometimes at lunch and, and sometimes over the phone. So now, um, obviously not treating acute trauma, not doing surgery, have formally laid down the knife, as we say, but enjoy patient education, spending time with patients, and focusing on the non-operative management of of hand and wrist problems predominantly, as well as doing some pre-surgical counseling and helping people understand that they may have been recommended the right surgery by their surgeon. But maybe perhaps it's not the right time for that, right. which is part of what we've talked about in having enough time to spend with the patient to put the context of the propriety of surgery in, yeah, in view. You know, and, and for one, we're so blessed to have you here. And, and I can't tell you, just just having you in the office has been so, has been so cool, not only for the patients coming in, but also for Dr. Rogers and myself to get someone with your experience in here. And well, thank and, you. And, and that's something, you know, I wanted to talk with you a lot about the third party payer system from a provider's perspective. And, and I want to relate it back to the patients and, and, and what that means to them, because, you know, I, as we progress and um, things become more and more transparent in healthcare, uh, we hope, um, we think that, decisions are going to be on the patient. So I, I was hoping that you could talk a little bit about the the battles you fought with third-party payers and what that means for the provider and in result, you know, what that means for the patient. Okay. Well, um, y'all may not have known this was going to be an eight-hour interview. Um, <laughs> but no, seriously, I think in, you know, in 10 minutes or so, maybe let's do medical third-party payment insurance in quotes 101 
um, because I've been a patient and have been through the valley of the shadow of, wow, these insurance terms are more complicated than a timeshare contract. I mean, it's, (laughs) it's an enigma shrouded in a mystery and actually gift wrapped with a lot of deceit. And I think as a patient um, who has had third-party payers, medical insurance, if you will, and now as someone who uses a a Christian health-sharing ministry to offset the risk of, of, of more major medical or catastrophic things, let me just walk through why the common... The commonly understood third-party health payer system doesn't really make sense for what we're trying to expect it to do, and and why we have a health cost crisis. Um, I guess the, the the first thing to understand, and remember that these are my opinions; they're not um, Dr. Rogers's opinions or the opinions of or the the position necessarily held by performance medicine, but. Um, in my opinion, the number one addiction in this medicine, in this country, is, is not to certain medications, crack, cocaine, methamphetamines, pornography, NASCAR, gambling. The number one addiction is to entitlement. And subordinately, or as part of that, this addiction that we have to well, I want somebody else to pay for it, mm-hmm. third-party health plans. The largest of which, of course, is our federal government. And we have voted people into office who are profligately spending other people's money to provide health care as they see it as a right. And I would contest and vehemently argue against Healthcare is not a right. It's a privilege, responsibility, commodity, and you should not divorce responsibility from actions. When I was born in 1957 in San Angelo, Texas, my parents paid cash to the hospital and to the obstetrician for my delivery. They took care of that risk out of their family budget like so, you do with the next oil change on your car so when, when you say you know health care is a right let's let's not a right not not a right so tell me about the mentality because i i, I sense a mentality shift so i you know, when you say health care is not a right you know you think well is that right you know is that wrong but i think it's a mentality you know like when when you think of something when you think of something as a responsibility, you tend to um, do things that are going to lead to like healthy behaviors. Am I am I tracking with you there? Like you are. Um, when one assents or believes assents to or believes that healthcare is a right, then the next step is well, everybody should have it, and. A true right is God-given, it's inalienable, it can't be taken away or modified by another human being, and by definition, a right is not something I can take away from Ben Rogers or alter, and when government decides rights, there's no limit to what they will 
define a right as or who they will impose it upon. So when you start with healthcare as a right, then where are you going to stop? Is it a right for me to have my accountant fill my taxes out this year and pay and have someone else pay that? Do I have a right to a surveyor to come survey my property or um, an attorney to help me with some legal matter? And should all the other taxpayers in the country pay for that? So when the the third-party health payment system began soon after the, the Second World War. It was the right kind of insurance. It was high deductible, what they called major medical, and it indemnified or protected against the risk of catastrophic high-cost events. It didn't and should not have and wasn't intended to cover incidental and routine expenses. So how did we get how did we get to the point where, you know, the mentality is, you know, insurance protects me. It it keeps me healthy. Now it does protect you from bankruptcy in the event of a catastrophe uh and we're huge proponents of that. But like, you know, when did the mentality come for like routine stuff? All of a sudden you you're quick to get on the medication, you're you're quick to, um, we like to say, put Band-Aids on the problem, you, you know? So how did we get there? Because I, I actually think it, some of it's on the, on the practitioner side, too, because at one point, insurance was reimbursing the provider way more than, say, a cash price would be, you know, say back in, like, the 90s. So what's your thoughts on that? Well, I think in the mid-20th century, so after the Second World War, when uh, the government incentivized businesses to provide third-party health care as a benefit, but will give you a tax deduction to do so, it incentivized this whole industry (laughs) Um, And in general, you get more of what you subsidize and you get less of what you sanction or prohibit or restrict. And so naturally, people demanded more. And the, the increase in utilization became the fuel for more and more services to be covered by and more and more of the beneficiaries, the people participating in the insurance program, but not necessarily paying for it, demanding more and more. So I I think it was a slippery slope and somewhat of a cascade, but the tipping point became healthcare is a right and government is gonna provide a good bit of it. This dovetails with Medicare and Medicaid coming on board in the 1960s. And, you know, many physicians did see this coming where uh, they promised they would not get involved in the participation of medicine. Well, it's nothing short of an overt attempt now, I think, to right. take over health care. Right. But I, I just believe it's, it's, it's a slippery slope when you concede that you're entitled to this kind of coverage for even routine things. And, I, you know, I was kind of put fun at your your car and a, and a, an oil change, but think about how difficult it would be if you were a business owner and every transaction you made with your customer was through a third party. 
and it, it would just raise the cost, the burden, and the bureaucracy and contribute to burnout. Well, and the incentive and in, in who you're serving. So yeah. I, I think that's what's the most interesting part to me is this idea of the transaction being between you and me versus me, this person, then you. You know, so we're both kind of working with this person, you know, you as the doctor and me as the patient. That's a great point. And I, I can't remember if it was with your dad or uh, Dr. Rogers or with you in our conversation yesterday, but it's like there's this third person, there's this third entity in the exam room or the hospital room, and it is the, the great beast of some third-party payer who's actually dictating what services are available. Um, or can be, or medicines that can be, or treatments that can be rendered. And so it places a good bit of burden on the healthcare profession to be compliant. And hospitals spend a profligate amount of money trying to comply. My medical office, a solo office, profligate amount of time and money to have a culture of compliance because with the government setting the pace for all of this, yep. did you know, like the IRS, that you're guilty until proven innocent? So if they want some money back, they'll take it, and then you have to have the burden of proof to try to get it back right. because you're guilty until proven innocent. And the statutory penalties, the law set in the Federal Register, those penalties are criminal level penalties, and they're not civil penalties. Now, for the crooks who are fraudulently or overtly stealing, well then, you know, perhaps they should have criminal level statutes, but the insurance companies are following with some of these nefarious harmful practices and it creates this scepter of fear that hospitals and physicians have to operate under in order to be compliant and and in like the book that was written a while back about maybe we're all a bunch of felons every person's a felon because you know you you never really know if you're always in compliant with all the rules and regulations and the, well, it, that you know it, it is amazing because just based on what you said there in that two minutes, it becomes so clear um, what the main work that's happening in these medical practices or in these systems, what that main work is. You know, it's, it's not dealing with the patient. It's dealing with this invisible thing that no one sees. You know, so somebody coming in to see you, they don't see what's happening under, right. underneath in order to make your practice work or to make, you know, administrators happy because it's what keeps a, you know, a system, uh, up. So it's just, it's really fascinating. And I want to ask you, we're in this, we're in it, you know, we're in this insurance world. You know, mo most people have some sort of insurance, whether it's a high deductible plan or on an employer funded plan. Um, how do we navigate it? You know, because I can, it's, and it's easy for me because I'm biased to see how that would affect the level of care I'm getting. So let's, let's kind of piece it together in, in, in terms of what that means for the quality of care that patients are, are getting, for one, especially with this whole healthcare as a right sort of deal, which, you know, sounds great, you know, but it really, it can have a 
really negative consequence. Sure. You know, on, on, on so many fronts. Yeah. For those listening, let's, let's break that statement that, that had a couple of questions in it um, down to two simple questions, if I understood it. Actually, let's break that down into a statement and a question. The statement was beyond your years. Very wise of you to understand that something's changed in the practice of medicine. And I'll expound on what I think is happening in medical training and out in the front lines of most exams. And compliance has a lot to do with and it, I'm sure. Second, how do we deal with this third party payer addiction and I think I can share a little bit about the direct primary care model, um, speak about fee-for-service like what Dr. Rogers is, is doing here. So to highlight this statement, I'll share a vignette. I recently had dinner with a general surgery intern and his wife who are uh, friends. And he went to a top-shelf medical school in a in a major medical city, um, a state capital, and came to um, his general surgery internship um, sort of altruistically and very understandably expecting to work very hard. And in spite of some hours reductions and attempts to um, modulate fatigue and, and so forth, um, internship is is a, is a grueling thing in any specialty, but for a surgeon, there's there's the the fatigue factor, sleep deprivation, and um, still being on point with surgery. And I asked him what has been the biggest challenge, or even the biggest surprise, or both. And quote, he said, "I spend seventy five percent of my time on a computer keyboard." End quote. Mm-hmm. And so his altruism has been tarnished by the work product created by the hyper regulatory deep state, which has now got its clutch on medicine that it's about the documentation, stupid. It's not about the patient. So that's, and and it's, I've got a son-in-law who's just finishing medical school in South Carolina, and this is being crammed down their throats. And the documentation is not helping the patient. It's not, not to it's not to increase the quality of care. We should not throw the baby out with the bathwater. Documentation is important, pertinent things that are legit, positive, real, documented, examinable, and pertinent negatives that aren't there. Not saying that you shouldn't document. I'm just saying the right. depth and breadth of documentation usually mandated by the government and enforced by the hospital so that they can get paid more is affecting the quantity and negatively affecting the quality of medical education. That means that more and more physicians like I'll do a five-year orthopedic residency in the 1980s and some will do that now, but most, whereas maybe 15, 20% of people did an extra year or two of training in a specialty area, now about 95% of residents in orthopedics mm-hmm. do fellowships. It's taking longer and longer to get trained because there's more distraction. And maybe in another podcast, we can talk about 
the harmful effects of distraction on your physician. And then, so that's a very real thing that's happening today it, across the country. To me, it's like it, it, the focus, like we've got to somehow create incentives to shift the focus from compliance, you know, with institutions that are, that don't, that don't want to accept things on the first go around because their whole goal is, is not to make things easy on you. And and that's what people don't understand. I don't think is, you know, the, the, the third party thing, they're not working with the doctors or the, or these groups. They're, they're, they're actually an adversary in in many regards because they don't, that's well put. They don't want to pay you. (laughs) That's, that's, that's correct. And notwithstanding what they say, see what they watch what they do not what what they say so you know again in another podcast we can talk about how there's been a dilution of 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 medical education which i think is going to affect quality of care and access to it but what do we do today about it especially in the primary care community um there has been the direct primary care model there's been other concierge services um models developed uh, there's a physician down the road, Dr. Dustin Clark, who has a direct primary care subscription, pay a certain fee for month, yeah. but you know, relatively unlimited access to the doctor or as needed uh, access. Many things are covered. Um, there's paradigms or uh, systems of care that are being developed, but it depends on the state. And Tennessee could do better to be a more physician-friendly state. We need to get rid of this uh, sort of hidden tax system of the certificate of need, um, whereby if you want to do a surgical center, a therapy unit, an MRI, uh, or even build a hospital, you have to pay a sizable fee, lots more attorney fees, and negotiate with the state, uh, get the approval of the Um, other interested parties in the state when more free market minded states uh, who do not have a certificate of need um, flourish like in texas oklahoma the free market is allowed to compete if you're an ophthalmologist and want to have your own eye hospital like um there is in san antonio uh, you can have your own three or four story building your own optometrist your uh, own optician your own surgery center your own uh, laser eye surgery lasik laser eye surgery Mm -hmm. center and patients benefit uh, from a decrease in cost and in fact the lasik or um, Um, refraction eye surgery on the lens is a great example of how competition lowered the price of that over the last 30 years. So uh, there are in those states even surgeons who are cash only, medical specialists. My brother in Houston saw a ear, nose, and throat doctor who specialized in just ear nerve problems. And it was 400 bucks an hour, which is about what you'd pay for any principal in, a, in an attorney for an hour, in an attorney group for an hour. Um, the guy spent an hour with him, and he said, it was the best physician's visit I've ever had. I paid up front. He was on time. He was very professional and very knowledgeable. Mm-hmm. And I had a, a very weird 
um, ear nerve problem that that he was able to um, diagnose and give me the the recommended um, prognosis for it. It turned out to not be treatable. But even surgeons can, and the surgical patients can benefit from more of that free market competition. Mm -hmm. But what's happened, and and what we all need to realize is that this excessive regulatory climate is forcing more and more mergers. And and that can be both good and bad. Explain the merger thing because I think yeah, that's a Yeah, the big merger deal. is you're not going to see many more solo docs out there mm-hmm. or just a couple of docs. And like dentists have uh, – my brother's a vet. He's still solo. They, they don't – there is pet insurance, but um, it's not as widespread as medical insurance. The dentist – I've never had dental insurance. I've always paid cash. Uh, but the dental industry is, is, is becoming more – dental insurified Mm -hmm. Um, but you still see a lot of solo dentists because they're they and the vets and some other uh, medical professionals chiropractors are are lagging behind and I give them credit for basically stiff arming some of the third-party pressure so uh, you know as patients you know when should we seek out a a cash-only situation versus when should we take advantage of our insurance you know because a lot of people here have insurance as they as they should you know how do we how do we better use the insurance and and when do we seek out you know we we like to call it outside the box alternatives you know outside the box things we can do that's another great question and and again sort of accentuates some of your knowledge beyond your years about what's going on with the healthcare system because the moment you sign an insurance contract, you forsake your privacy. And so there's many things, many emergencies where, you know, if you're in a car wreck and you're knocked out like Tiger Woods was, you really don't get to have a choice about right. which hospital you go to. You want to go to the most proximate closest major medical trauma center and you'll figure out the cost payment the cost and the payment at at a later date and so I, i don't think we can really go there yet with this limited amount of time but i think for routine things um if you want to keep things more private and um have the responsibility for your 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 routine medical care then putting money into a health savings account, mm. seeking out one of these 50 or $60 a month direct primary mm-hmm. care practices uh, for other things where you seek additional consultation, like you want additional input about men's, women's hormones, wellness, weight loss, sports medicine, go to an integrated medicine doctor like Tom Rogers and you pay cash for your lab or you pay for your hormone pellets you pay for his time to explain with longer appointments what perhaps your primary care physician doesn't have time to discuss with you Um, and then you know the other reality is I don't think the third party insurance paradigm or system is going away anytime right so you know you and I are not going to solve it today but I, th- I think it is a personal right of conscience how you choose to indemnify your highest risk health and most expensive 
health matters and um, understanding it, listening to podcasts like yeah. this, uh, reading more about it, thinking about the basic economics of all of this. I think will make you a better consumer. Yeah, and, and I think, you know, one of the things that is really why I wanted you on today was I think we need to have this conversation. You know, people need to hear these conversations so that they can make good decisions in regard to their health care because health care dollars are valuable. And, um, and I think it's helpful that people understand what's happening on the physician end. It's, it's, it's just super fascinating. Um, but I want to be respectful of your time. And, and I, I just I really appreciate you coming on. And we're going to have you back on for a follow up. You got to promise me. We'll, we'll do that. We'll do and, that. Uh, the answer is yes. <laughs> and I want to end with one thing that I find interesting that we'll start next time on is I feel like the attitude of you know, because I get a lot of questions of, do you take, you know, uh, United or do you take Blue Cross? I feel like a lot of patients, if the answer is no, they feel like they can't go there, y you know? So you get, there's this weird um, mentality that comes with, you know, being on a Blue Cross panel, you know, or, or that oh, being insured. Oh, certainly. And that's part of the addiction. What do you mean you don't take insurance at, at Performance Medicine? Um, we'll get into that yeah. and, and maybe some of the, the, the specific things that, that happen in a medical practice with third-party yeah. plans that when you go to the doctor, you don't even know are, are happening, but which are raising the overhead of the physicians yeah. and why some of your physicians may not participate in some of those plans. Hey, I really appreciate your time. Oh, this, uh, is, this has been unbelievable. It, it's I'm been super a lot pumped. Of fun. Guys, stay tuned. There will be a follow up to this. Uh, we are thinking outside the box. Uh, this is Outside the Box Conversations with Ben Rogers, Dr. Gorman. It's been a blast, man. Thanks so much. Have a great rest of the day. See you guys. Thanks, guys, for listening to this episode of the podcast. Uh, please share the podcast with your friends. And if you haven't subscribed yet, please subscribe. Uh, we will see you guys next time.